This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 31 through 33. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is God's word. Please be seated. Like I said, this is a CBR special. And what that means is I get to reflect as the preacher back on something that was uniquely powerful to me in my time of community Bible reading. And I'm sure if you've been around the Bible uh, at all, you've heard this verse 33 or something like it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. We hear something very similar to this in Luke 9. Just earlier, and it's twice in Mark, apparently it's very, very important that Jesus said something like this. And in this, we actually have the worldview, so to speak, of the kingdom. We actually have the value set of the kingdom expressed in a very paradoxical Jesus-like way. In verse 33, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And this is one of the things that's so comforting to me is that when we read this, I think it can bring immediate conviction. It can bring maybe some confusion and maybe some fear as we reflect on the way in which we live our life, knowing that Jesus is saying this to his disciples. But when I read this, and as I've continued to reflect on this, one of among many emotions I've had is thankfulness. And one of the reasons I've been thankful is because I know that he's speaking to his disciples and because I know that verse 33 sums up the entire trajectory of the Christian life, not just a snapshot. I know that I will find mercy in my Lord. I know that I will find grace. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we hear this strong and difficult message today, I want to remind every single one of us that those who trust in Christ are safe in Christ. You're safe. You belong to him. And he, he desires for us to respond appropriately. I think Jesus speaks this to us so clearly because he knows that all of us, even disciples, have a deep proclivity to live a selfish life. We have a deep proclivity to spend our lives on ourself. We have a deep proclivity to hoard our life, to hoard our gifts, to hoard our resources, because we actually think that when we hoard them, they will multiply. Think about anything else in life. Think about anything else in the gospels or the scriptures themselves. Does it ever go well when you hoard something? Does something that you bury ever multiply? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. It may seem paradoxical at first, but as we sit in it and we sit with it, we understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life. Now this word preserve could be stated, whoever seeks to keep his life for himself. 
Some translations say, whoever seeks to cling to his own life. Some translations say, whoever seek, seeks to have life on his own terms and not God's terms. That one will lose his life. That one will destroy his life. That one will snuff out his life. As that one reaches and hoards, he will strangle his own life. That's what Jesus is saying. And all of us have a proclivity to do just that. And Jesus speaks to his disciples because that's true. So I have one main question today with three subpoints. And those subpoints are just words. And this is my question What keeps us from spending our lives on others? And I say spend like money or like resources. What keeps us from spending our lives and not hoarding it for ourselves? Jesus says very clearly, if you seek to hoard your own life, if you seek to keep your own life for yourself, you will kill yourself. You will lose it. Throughout all my reflections over the past weeks, I keep coming down to these three words The three words that answer the question, what keeps us from spending our lives on others is folly, fame, and fear. So first, folly. Now these aren't the only things, but these are the three things that all started with the same letter. And these these things are all of the things that, that I could sum up what I was experiencing and hopefully share some reflections with you. So here we go. By folly, I mean foolishness. Uh, I mean a lack of good sense. Now, the Bible, when it uses the word fool or folly or foolishness, uh, doesn't always or maybe even mainly mean stupid, like you fool. Now, sometimes it does, and when it does, it usually tells us. It usually talks about foolishness or folly, and then that person is stupid if they want us to know that it was stupidity. But more often than not, the Bible communicates with the idea of folly. It communicates a bent heart or um, a desire for self. It's a moral term. It's this idea of being immoral, having improper loves. And so I mean all of that. I mean stupidity. I'm expanding it. I mean stupidity. I mean a a bent towards an inordinate love of stuff and things and ourselves. I mean all of that when I say fool, foolishness, or folly. Because you see, the fool is blinded and misguided by a heart that loves something more than God. What would that look like in the text itself, right? So look back at 31. By the way, if you read this chapter, it's very confusing. Uh, All commentators will tell you this is an extremely confusing chapter, but what I'm about to preach is not confusing, okay? Everyone would say, we're not exactly sure how this all fits together, uh, the whole chapter, um, but there are certain parts that are clear in theme, and 31 and 31 through 33 are extremely clear. Verse 31, talk about folly. On that day, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the day when he returns. The whole chapter is about his kingdom. He says to the Pharisees, you don't understand. My kingdom's already come, it's among you. Here it is. But then he looks at his disciples and he says, it is here, but not yet. It's here, but not yet. And when it comes, you won't be able to miss it. So when he says in verse 31, on that day, he's talking about when he returns and his kingdom comes in fullness. 
And he says, let the one who is on the housetop. Now in this day and age, many of you may know, the houses had flat roofs and it was part of the working space of the house. So they would put things on top of the house. They might be working on the house. They may sleep on the house when it's really hot. There are uh, various reasons for people to be on top of the house. So Jesus says, imagine a man on top of his house. And then all of a sudden, boom, he looks up and he sees the kingdom of God coming. And what does he do? Well, He's on his own house, so his goods are in the house. He says, let that one not come down to take them away. So this man is like standing on top of his house. He sees Jesus coming, and the first thought he has is, let me go get the flat screen. I'll be right back. You know, I mean, who is this guy? Foolishness, folly. And it's easy to laugh. It's easy for me to laugh, to pass this over. Well, of course I wouldn't do that. Jesus comes back. I'm going to fall on my face. But then... As he's talking to his disciples, I can imagine he's thinking, well, I know you wouldn't think that you would do that. But then he just says this interesting thing right here in verse 32, three words. He says, remember Lot's wife. You guys remember Lot's wife? Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed. God in his kindness because of Abraham and his own mission in the world goes into Sodom and Gomorrah takes Lot and his wife out of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the hand, it says, if you go back and read it, by the hand. And then Lot argues with him and says, I don't want to go to the woods. Bad things could happen there. Can you take me to this city? And the angel says, sure, because I can't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until you get there. So as Lot and his wife are walking, they get to the city and God starts destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Lot's wife do? She turns around and looks. And what happens? She dies. So why would, what, what relevance does that have of the man who wants to go grab his flat screen before Jesus brings his kingdom and the disciples and our proclivity to hoard our life because of our folly? How is it all connected? Well, I believe that Jesus says, remember Lot's wife because Lot's wife tried to leave. She tried to flee a life of debauchery. She tried to flee a life captured by self-indulgence. She tried to leave a life completely spent on her own desires. But as she left, and we think she's now safe, something in her heart had its hooks. And it had, and these things, this stuff, this life filled with self-pleasure and self-aggrandizement and living for herself, it's still there. And she tried to leave, but then she turns And I think Jesus is saying, pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your desires. Pay attention to the power of folly that's in your flesh that still exists. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus understands and we should understand that the one who clings to a life spent on themselves will kill their life. They will ruin their life. They will snuff out their life. So what does this look like for us? I was trying to think, well, how do I, how am I like Lot's wife? And the question that kept coming up in my mind, I thought, well, I can get at this with a different question. And that's this. What is success to you, Damien? What is success? And I would ask you that question. What is success? Is success to live a life, live for myself? Or is success a life that is increasingly spent on others. 
How am I defining success? Because I think we all know that if we define success as a life lived and spent on others' good and not primarily our own, that life is going to look different than the life that is trying to grasp for itself. So therefore, success will look different. What about, is your idea of success you being ultimately comfortable? Right? If I can just have this, if I reached this point, I would have no worries and things would be so much easier and they wouldn't be as hard. If I could just get there, that's a successful life. Well, how does that life look? I think that life probably looks like a lot of grasping, like a lot of finding for myself, like a lot of seeking for my own ends so that I can be comfortable. Maybe for some of us, it's control. You think, if I could just reach this place, if I could just be there, if I could just be autonomous, if I could just be my own boss, if I could just have things easier, if I could just be in control, my life would be better. I don't want to spend my life. That's too risky. I don't want to spend my life. There's doubt there. There's confusion there. I think it's safer if I just hoard my own life. I do these things all the time. I find myself repenting of these things all the time. Last week, I was in class, and in the program that I'm in, we read and talk about a lot of social science literature, and this phrase keeps coming up, and nowadays, this, this is just a reality in all of our lives, and the phrase is this, self-authorship. There's a whole body of literature on self-authorship. And essentially, back in the old days, 20 years ago, uh, we used to recognize that our experiences shaped who we are. And the culture that we were in shaped who we are. And our family shaped who we are. Our faith shaped who we are. But nowadays, it's just expected that it's not like that anymore. I make myself. I choose who I am. I author my own life. It's just a given. And I think this might be the biggest blindness caused by folly, by foolishness. And that is to believe that we are actually in control of our lives. So you hoard your life because you think it's safer that way. I hoard my life because I think it's safer that way. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you want to gain life, you will spend it on others. If you hoard your life, you in essence will snuff out your own life. You will strangle yourself. What does it look like in your life? How are we spending our lives? What's the trajectory? What does our repentance look like? Because I can tell you this, this is the Christian life. This is a journey. This is walking. This is following. This is not, not arriving. We don't arrive at this. I think Jesus would have us ask ourselves or, or, or say to ourselves every now and then, remember Lot's wife. So I think that's the first thing. I think the first thing that keeps me and probably us from spending our life is folly, foolishness, a a desire that we actually author our own life. I think the second thing that comes to my mind is fame. So if folly tells us we author our own life, I think fame tells us we're the star of our own life, that we're overly important. Now, it's a good desire. There's a deep desire in us to be accepted and to be loved. But when that desire becomes inordinate, when that desire becomes a necessity, 
we need the praise of others. We need to be made much of. So when I say fame, I don't only mean the cover of a magazine. Some of you are like, well, I don't want to be famous. That would be horrible. I don't want people to know who I am when I walk down the street. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. This is the definition according to Webster's Dictionary of fame. Fame is the condition of being known or talked about by many people, especially for a notable achievement. Every single one of you, me, we all want to be made much of. When we lose our soberness and we see other people talking, isn't your first reaction, they must be talking about me. Good or bad, because I know that I'm the first thing on their mind all the time. (laughs) And we sort of project that onto them, right? We, when we lose sight of our identity being a child of God, we need fame. How are you going to spend your life if you need to be famous? Because you're too busy trying to gain. How are you going to spend your life if you need to be made much of? Because you can never make much of someone else and you certainly can't image God and make much of him if you need to be famous, even in your own household or your own community group or your own church or your own division at work or in your own company or in your own city or in your own circles. Do you need to be famous? Is success to you fame? Is that success? I'm afraid too often that's exactly how I define success. I want every single one of you to think much of me. And when I'm not sobered, that's exactly what my motivation is. That's exactly what my drive is. And I think C.S. Lewis gets at this idea very well in one of his writings when he's he's talking about J.R. Tolkien and he is referencing something that he wrote. And Lewis calls this the inner ring. Have you guys heard of the inner ring? This is the inner ring. It's Lewis trying to describe the age-old idea of cliques and popularity and all of our struggle to fit in whatever society we find ourselves in. So he talks about the inner ring. For a scholar or someone who one day would hope to be a scholar, it's a certain society of people. That's where Lewis was, okay? It's a certain society and wherever you find yourself, you find, well, you're like, well, if I get a professorship, then I'm in. Lewis is like, no, not really, because there's always that next ring. And all of us in our lives, we are looking forward in, when we're not sober, when we're not trying to spend our lives, when we're hoarding our lives, we're trying to find that next ring to get in, to make us famous. It might be three people, it might be four people, it might be more than that, but we have our eyes on this ring that we're trying to break in. And this is what Lewis says. He says, quote, the quest of the inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. He's saying, the quest to be in that inner ring will break your heart. What else could we say? The quest for the inner ring for fame will ruin your life. You will lose your life. I will lose my life unless we break it. That desire to be famous, to be made much of, to be the star of our own life. Now, to be fair, most of us in this room are in an inner ring, right? So if you're thinking, well, I just kind of find myself and I have a lot of influence and I didn't, I didn't like strive to get there, I would say, amen. And I have found myself there before. So I want to talk about that for a second. What do you do when you find yourself in a ring that everyone else wants to be in? How do you spend your life for others then? How do you spend your life when others perceive that you have arrived? Or you find yourself in a system that you have a lot of power and people treat you like you have arrived. What do you do then? 
When I lived in San Diego, I met a man who became a friend of mine. And he was a first-generation immigrant from Mexico, from the Tijuana area. His parents moved their whole family into the inner city of San Diego. Why? Well, because they wanted to give their, their kids a life that they didn't have. So when he was young, his mom took advantage of a tutoring program from a local nonprofit in the city. And she looked at him and she said, if you try hard, you can actually make something of yourself. So he applied himself and he found that he actually was really good at school. He was good at this school thing. And so he kept excelling. And people told him in there, listen, if you apply yourself, you could probably get in to this prestigious high school on a full ride scholarship. So he worked for years and he found himself in the most prestigious high school in San Diego. And he told me, he's like, yeah, sometimes I would take public transformation. Sometimes I would take our beaten down family vehicle and I would go into the parking lot and it would be filled with Infinities, BMWs, Lexus. And I thought, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. But he kept working because his mom asked him to. And he found himself valedictorian. And he applied to a few schools, all Ivy League schools on the East Coast, got accepted to all of them, one on the West Coast. And he went to one of the most prestigious schools in our country, graduated early with a degree in economics, and then asked himself, what do I do with this? What do I do with this power that I have now? And he was just coming back from school when we met and we talked to me and and he was lost. He didn't know now. He didn't try to get into this inner ring, but everyone was now telling him, you're in an inner ring. What are you going to do now? You're thinking you're the inner city kid. Now you have power. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to spend that power? Are you going to hoard it? Or are you going to spend it? And in our conversation, I just gave him this thought. I said, listen, your power is for the flourishing of others. Don't you dare try to get rid of your power. God has given you this for some reason. Don't hoard it. Spend it. Don't keep it. Give it. Use it steward your power. And all of us, whether you think you're powerless, I didn't graduate from a private school. Most of us didn't graduate from a private Ivy League school. Some of us didn't even graduate from college and that's fine too. Every single one of us has power. And what Jesus, I think, would say to us is part of spending your life for others is taking account of what you have to spend You have power. You have influence. For some of you, you have great vocational power. How are you spending that for the flourishing of others? Some of you have great relational power. How will you invest that towards the flourishing of others? And you know what Jesus is saying? When you do that, you'll actually discover life. You actually discover who you are, not self-authorship. What in the world is that? It's folly. You're You're not the star of your life. You weren't meant to be. You'll crush if you were the star of your life. How will we use our power? How will we spend everything that we have for the flourishing of others? That is clearly one of the things that Jesus would ask us to consider. He who grasps his life for himself will lose it. He who spends everything he has and is For the flourishing of others, who invests himself, herself, ourselves in that reality, will find life, will gain it. 
So what keeps us from spending our lives on others? I think our folly. And our folly tells us that we can self-author our life. That we're in control. Our, our inordinate desire to be made much of. Fame. No matter how big our circles are. And it would have us believe that we are the star of our own life. But then we're left with this. And that is the third F. And it's fear. I think at the end of this, if we're honest, you feel like me. And you're thinking, okay, fine. But how do I live a life like this? How is this possible? How is it possible to spend my life? How is it possible to steward all that I am and all that I have for the flourishing of others? How do I increasingly live a life not riddled with folly or destroyed by the need for fame and not crippled by fear? How is that possible? I read a sermon this week uh, on this passage by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he preached it in Birmingham, right in the middle of all of the civil rights movement that he was involved in. And this is what he says when he's preaching this passage. I want to read you a quote, okay? And entering into the quote, the only thing I think we have to know to understand what he's about to say is that he's been making an argument that the most selfish people he knows are also the most fearful people he knows. He's saying, in my life, what I've recognized is those people who are most selfish are the people who have the most to lose, and therefore they're the most afraid. And this is what the doc, uh, Dr. King says. He says, quote, He who seeks to find his ego will lose it. But he who loses his ego for some great cause, for some great purpose, for some great ideal, for some great loyalty, he who discovers somehow that he stands where he stands because of the forces of history and because of other individuals. And here, don't miss this. He who discovers that he stands where he stands because of the grace of God finds himself. He loses himself in that something that is so much bigger than him so that he can later find himself there. In our CBR uh, next week, in Isaiah 41, we're going to get there. And for those of you who are still reading Isaiah, bless your heart. Some of you, I understand. It's chapter after chapter of God pursuing his people who have rejected him, chapter after chapter. It's God pursuing his people when they reject him because of their folly. When they, when they want fame on their own terms amongst all the other nations. And they say, you know what? If we want fame like the other nations, we actually kind of have to leave our God. We don't want to spend our inheritance on other people. We want it for ourselves. That's what God's people were doing in Isaiah. And there's a lot of bad things uh, that are discussed in Isaiah. And then the Lord gets to chapter 41, verse 10. And this is what he says. After God's people have displayed amazing folly, after they've sought fame for themselves and rejected him, this is what he says. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. 
How are you and I going to give? How are we going to spend ourselves? Who's going to spend themselves on us? As parents, how are we going to over and over and over spend ourselves for the flourishing of our children, not giving in when it's not good for them and not lashing out when it's our own issue? How do we spend ourselves day after day, moment after moment for their flourishing, for their their discipleship? That's exhausting. How do we do that? How do we spend ourselves day after day in a job that is so demanding and people that are so difficult? How do we spend ourselves in a marriage that's difficult over and over and over and keep pouring ourselves out and spend all that we are for others? How do we spend ourselves in community group after all of that I've just said has been happening all week or all day? And yet we come and we have to display ourselves to our community group and try to spend ourselves? How's that gonna happen? How's that possible? Where am I gonna get that strength? Listen, when whatever God calls his people to, go back and read Isaiah again. In the whole Bible, whatever God calls his people to, he always provides for that calling. Provision is one of the central keys, one of the central fundamental realities of the Bible. And when we read Isaiah 41.10, and God refuses to cast off his people, And he says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Where else do we see that displayed? That Jesus, God becomes flesh and spends himself completely. Snuffs out his life on the cross for us. This isn't easy, but I know it's true. I've experienced myself caught up in God's kingdom purposes based on my own being a child of him. And I find life when I spend myself. Because as I spend myself, I I don't run to stuff. I don't run to fame when I find life. I run to Jesus who ultimately spent his life for me. And who holds me, I belong to him, I'm secure. And now I have the power, I have access to the power to spend my life on others. It's always the same thing. I go back to Jesus and I would invite all of us as we engage on this journey of learning, failing, repenting, longing to spend our lives on others and find life, that we go to Jesus for that power. Let's pray. Father, we're all in different places, but I know that if we reflect long enough, we can easily uh, confess folly. We can easily confess our desire to be made much of and be famous in our own minds and in those we do life with in their eyes. We confess that we define success by status and by comfort and power and control. We confess that we hoard our lives. But Father, we are so thankful we don't author our life. We are so thankful that we are not the star of our own life. And we are so thankful that we are not our own Lord. You're the only one with the resources to bless us. You're the only one with the power to save us. You're the only one with the power and mercy to change us. And so we pray from one degree 
of glory to the next that you would change us. And as we sing songs of response and thankfulness, we do pray that you would give us faith, that you would move us to call upon your name instead of running to false gods for resources and love. We pray we would increasingly surrender ourselves to Jesus. In his name we pray.